I called once and she didn't answer. Then I tried again and again. Finally, she picked up and she sounded calm. The storm was still distant, making its ominous U-turn back toward Bay City, lining up for its projected recharge on the coast. My mother was getting her nails done. Hello and welcome to The Right Question, a radio program and podcast featuring authors from the American West and beyond. Our funding comes from Humanities Montana and members of Montana Public Radio, and from the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. I'm Lauren Korn, speaking with Micah Fields, author of We Hold Our Breath, A Journey to Texas Between Storms. When Hurricane Harvey made landfall in 2017, Micah set off from his home in Iowa back to the battered city of his childhood to rescue his mother. She was hell-bent on staying no matter how many feet of rain surged in from the Gulf. Micah tracks the devastation of Hurricane Harvey, one storm in a long lineage that threatened Houston, Texas, and does so with reverence and lyrical certainty. We Hold Our Breath is an honest investigation into the conflicting facets of Texan identity that are as resilient as they are catastrophic. Micah confronts his own relationship to this waterlogged place, to his family, both given and chosen, and to masculinity. Micah Fields is a writer, teacher, and fly fishing guide on the Missouri River. His work has been published in Oxford American, Gulf Coast, Baffler, Columbia Journalism Review, Field and Stream, and other outlets. He served as a Marine Corps Infantry Rifleman from 2007 to 2011 and is a combat veteran of deployments in Iraq and Afghanistan. He lives in Helena, Montana. Micah, thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome to The Right Question. Thank you. Good to be here. I would love it if you began with a reading. Um, Will you read the author's note from We Hold Our Breath? Sure. This is how a flood is born. It comes in the sneaking increments of inches and hours. It arrives with the soft accumulation of a drizzle, innocent at first, sent down from the pent-up moisture of heaving clouds. At first, the rain falls into a dutiful chain of events. It gathers on the shoulders of roads, shedding off windshields and roofs, forming impromptu creeks in the gutters and sidewalks. It organizes itself quietly, obeying commands as simple as gravity and slope, occupying insignificant depressions, an upturned leaf, the shallow bowl of a pothole, a dip in a driveway. Droplets absorb into grass and soil. Parched concrete holds what it can. Asphalt swells. Drains swirl. Children, loading a bus for school, carry the trivial weight of rain in their soaked clothes and hair. In a parking lot, a man's car, the sunroof left open, accepts the gift of rain onto its upholstered interior, onto its seats and plastic console. Rivulets fill the small basins of cup holders. The reality of a flood, its basic principles, are simple. We know how they work. But the event itself challenges the imagination. The essential ingredients of a flood, 
the possibility of rain without end, its ability to rise and consume, the artful treachery of water, confound us. In this sense, the defining characteristic of a flood, more than any sight or sound or smell, is surprise. It is no secret the city was built on a foundation of mud. The errors involved are obvious, and the question of reasoning is useless, for its answer is lost in the mouths of the long dead. Instead, the most popular concern, the one that is repeated by outsiders until it has taken the form of an allegation, a condemnation, a slur, is why we stayed. That's a beautiful passage. Um, I have two questions. The first, why you chose to open your memoir with that passage. And the second um, is less a question and more a statement that I'm just going to throw at you and wonder how you respond to it, which is just that I was so taken by the way that you wrote about these allegations, these slurs, this dismissive attitude towards Houston itself. And I'm wondering um, when, here's a question, when that idea, when that thread became a reality for this memoir? Yeah, a lot to unpack there. Um, I I think I wanted to do two things with this book, or the book sort of has two missions in my mind. One is it tells a history of Houston and the central Texas coast, not the history, but a history, my history. It follows my interests, my life, uh, you know, the idiosyncrasies of, of my curiosity and, and research. Um, and it also tells the story of, of a flood, one of the most significant rain events in the nation's history. Um, and, you know, to answer the first question, I, th- I think when, when we talk about floods and natural disasters, a lot of times the language is sort of simplistic as if, you know, the flood wasn't there and then it was, or, uh, you know, the, the city was dry and then it was underwater, or uh, the people were sitting in their living room and then they were swimming, you know? And I think, um, you know, the way, the way floods consume, the way hurricanes consume and, and destroy places is, in fact, much more nuanced. And, uh, and the way specifically the flood flooding that happened after Hurricane Harvey consumed the city of Houston was sort of fractured. It, it, was, it was not just one flood, but many different kinds of floods. You know, it was um, because of the rain, but also because of, uh, you know, the way the city is built. And I was really interested in, um, in the history of the city already and was already writing that book when Hurricane Harvey happened. And, and so that sort of gets to the second question, which is that um, I think the, the second mission of this book was to defend uh, this area, you know, that I had grown up in and sort of, you know, to be honest, hated as a kid and sort of fled from, um, it's sort of a defense of that place. And, and I I tried to write a book that looked at it with reverence and honesty and sort of respected the culture and history of the place, but also spoke directly about its painful past and, uh, the mistakes that have been made there. And, uh, uh, what makes it an interesting place to live in and write about and be from. Um, so I thought the the best entry point was to simply uh, describe a flood in not so simple terms, because it's not a simple thing. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's such a striking opening. Um, you write, or you just said, really, this. you have, you have a very complicated relationship to this place mm-hmm. um, that you, you didn't like growing up there. Um, and... 
I think the word that came to mind as I was reading it is you you write very pragmatically about the city. Um, there's not a lot of sentimentality there, but in the book there is a bit of nostalgia, and you and you write that word specifically, but you also write a little bit towards that idea. And I'm wondering how you think about nostalgia and your relationship mm. to Houston. Yeah, I think um, you know what is the Picasso, all art is theft or, you know, and I think I'm always, we're always imitating as writers and, um, and writing, you know, as disciples of, of a, of a mentor or, or authors that we really admire. And for me, a, kind of a, a North star for this book was another book by, uh, the writer DJ Waldy called Holy Land, which is, um, uh, he, it's called a suburban memoir, but it's, a it's, it's another history you know, uh, combined with memoir about um, one of the first American suburbs of Lakewood, California. And, and he writes, uh, his tone is very unsentimental in that sense. And, um, but, but also I think laced with emotion, you know, in, in every page. And I think um, I wanted to write similarly about Houston with, you know, while still avoiding the sort of drippy nostalgia that I think a lot of, um, you know, bad memoir might take on. Um, and so, uh, and I'm also just interested in the, in the details of, of how the place was built and, um, and wanted to kind of honor those facts um, while also exploring the city and my past in it and the flood in a lyrical way. So I think sort of approaching the book with uh, the mind of a historian and the and the heart of a poet is kind of my goal, you know, and striking that balance in nonfiction is is kind of uh, what I'm a disciple of as a writer. And I tried to do that here and hopefully, you know, worked, but... <laughs> I think it did. I think it did. Um, and I want to speak towards uh, DJ Waldy's role in this book because mm -hmm. I, I felt his influence and you also mention um, both Holy Land and him in this book. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned other authors too, and I, I want to get to that, but I do want to talk about this book as an artifact of its form, the mm -hmm. genre of nonfiction, um, because it reads so much like personal essay, right? You're bringing in your personal experiences with these histories, with other information, research. Um, and I've always known you, Micah, as a writer of nonfiction, but I don't know that we've ever talked about the genre specifically, kind of your experimentation with it. I really loved hearing you talk about this idea of like the the mindset of a historian, right? You know, the poet. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering what compels you to write and more towards this very long preface. Um, why why do you write nonfiction if, if you might have impulses of both a poet and a historian too? Mm -hmm. You know, I like, uh, I think as writers, we're always trying to write well, one, the books that we like or the books that we want to read or the books that um, don't exist, so we want to make them exist, right? So uh, I think I like really messy books uh, about true things. And um, I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm really drawn to books that are hard to parse in a blurb or, uh, you know, a jacket description. And um, I think... You know, the history of the essay begins, um, well, there's, you know, it's ar arguable where it begins, but the word, you know, essay, the French word to attempt begins with Montaigne and um, that idea that uh, in nonfiction or in, in an essay or a lyric essay, you're trying to attempt to explore a curiosity. And to me, that, um, that is as exciting as, as any poetry or fiction. And, and I like using 
um, the material of nonfiction to sort of explore um, or attempt to explore something in that lyrical way. So for me, uh, you know, nonfiction has um, both the stability of fact, but also the sort of freedom of uh, the sentence and, and rhythm, and, and that's really exciting to me. Um, I like I like thinking about this idea of the writing process as an exploration. I'm wondering what surprised you on the other side of writing it. Um, it hasn't, as as we're talking, it hasn't yet come out, but it will um, soon. What did you learn from writing this book? How did you come out on the other side of it? I think, yeah, I think um, to go back to my you know idea about liking messy work. You know, I think. I like books that and, and essays and, and any form of writing that sort of shows the writer's uh, process of thinking, you know, and uh, sort of mirrors a mind on a page. And so in that sense, I think um, you should never have something figured out before you're writing it, right? And so for me, the most exciting thing is figuring out uh, things on the page as I'm writing them. So it, in, in that sense, this book was an attempt for me to figure out uh, what my homeland meant to me. Um, and I started writing this book in grad school when I had a lot of complicated uh, connections to that place and, and still do. And um, like I said, I sort of I sort of despised growing up in Texas and, and left pretty quickly. And, um, and then later in adulthood, I sort of realized that, you know, the place I came from was actually really fascinating. And, um, and the city of Houston was really worth exploration. And it had informed my sensibilities as a person, as an artist, as a writer. And it sort of had gotten a bad rap. You know, I think a lot of people write off cities like Houston as, you know, sort of victims of sprawl and ugly and industrial. And, and while some of that may be true, you know, it's also uh, you know, one of the most diverse places in our country and, and has a fascinating and troubled and, and intriguing past. And so, you know, in writing this book, you know, before Hurricane Harvey hit, um, I was writing it to, to defend that place and to, again, answer the question of what it meant to me and how it had formed my sensibilities as a, as a writer, as a, as a person. You're listening to a conversation with memoirist and essayist Micah Fields. I'm Lauren Korn. This is The Right Question. If you'd like to listen to this conversation again or share it with friends, it can be found online at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Do you want to read another excerpt from We Hold Our Breath? It was the animals that got to me first. It was the swift and anomalous conduct of wildlife, the ants in particular, which were observed floating in odd heaps throughout the city, each insect clasped to one another, thousands of them, like some kind of freakish, buoyant phalanx. They drifted, impermeable and furious, for miles. Sources warned residents to stay away. The rafts of displaced colonies might swarm your body in an instant, biting on instinct. The weather had turned the terrain strange, and the animals seemed to channel its most dramatic permutations. Whole prairie and riparian habitats clashed. 
At one point in the days following the storm, driving between road blockages that had been repurposed as boat ramps, I spotted three deer in a quarter-mile stretch of suspended freeway, all of them dead, all of them mature bucks, there on the damp shoulder high above the city, improbably posed like grotesque taxidermy. Cattle, too, and horses, still alive but desperate, were huddled on bare islands of pasture, and I began to think, in an irrational spiral of anxiety, that the rain would never stop, that the fauna would disappear, that the weight of the flood would keep pushing, and the city I knew as a child would sink, quietly, gradually, into an industrial Atlantis. Still at my home in Iowa, I'd monitored the weather radar and watched Hurricane Harvey blossom into a fierce, twirling rose over the Gulf. When the eye got closer to Texas, I turned to the feed of a webcam in Corpus Christi, monitoring the southern half of the state's coast. Before evacuating, a man had propped his laptop in the kitchen, turned it toward an east-facing window, and left it on. The stream lasted until the sky sank and the rains turned horizontal. The shrubs began to whip back and curl over the home's deck. Then the feed went black. I switched to another live cam, this time on a dock in Port O'Connor, farther up the coastline, where a row of skiffs bobbed, then rocked, then shanked violently against their pilings. The storm was grinding north. When the video feed in Port O'Connor dropped, I called my mother. She lives in far west Houston, in a two-story house looking out over the upper reaches of Buffalo Bayou and Brazos River. Just a year before, she'd watched the bayou crest and swallow a home behind hers. I called once, and she didn't answer. Then I tried again, and again. Finally, she picked up, and she sounded calm. The storm was still distant, making its ominous U-turn back toward Bay City, lining up for its projected recharge on the coast. My mother was getting her nails done. Your mother is a central point in this, in this book. Um, I'm wondering how your understanding of her changed. I think there's two different parts of that question, this idea that when you were actually there in 2017 on the ground with her or heading towards her, um, how your understanding or your relationship changed in that sense, but also how it changed after the process of the page happened. Yeah, I, I think um, I've had a few people ask me, you know, if I'm worried about um, how my mother will receive this book. And I think a lot of them are surprised to hear that I'm, I'm not worried at all because, you know, the, the book speaks fairly honestly about um, my relationship with my mother and, and her struggle with mental illness. And um, she was diagnosed with bipolar disorder uh, when I was a child and, and struggled with that throughout my life. And she's an incredibly emotionally intelligent person and, and raised me in the same way and, um, and so I, I think this book respects her her intelligence in that way, uh, and is also very honest about her struggles. And it was also a you know a way for me to understand her struggle as a parent. You know, I think something we don't realize 
until we're much older or maybe until we become parents is that our parents were basically children when we were children too, you know, <laughs> and uh, we didn't think of, about them that way when, when we were growing up, but um, they were living their own lives and having their own struggles. And, and so I, I tried to honor, you know, her experience as a parent um, and also speak, you know, very honestly about our relationship. And in some ways, yeah, this book was a, was a attempt to understand, yeah, her, her struggle as a parent and the storm sort of uh, provided a, a, you know, a convenient backdrop for that um, by, you know, inserting a sense of necessity and, for the for the purpose of the book, it was a, it was a convenient metaphor for our relationship. Yeah, I think that it's it's easy to zoom out, um, especially after having read your book, to understand why maybe people broadly in general stayed. But did you, in two thousand seventeen, understand her want to stay? Absolutely, yeah, and and I think um, it's such an easy accusation. You know, people often make. Um, you know, when they're outside of those places, um, why why do people choose to stay when they know they're safer somewhere else? You know, why do they have this connection to the place? And um, and I and I'd ask those people to turn that question back on themselves. You know, your connection to to a place is is much more than just a, a physical house or um, you know where you know where you uh, grew up or where you were born. It's it's a it's a cultural connection. It's a psychic connection, and I wanted to explore, you know, the the complexities of that relationship to your home and uh, and the place that you call yours. Uh, there was also, uh, you know, a very uh, pragmatic explanation to her wanting to stay, which is that she's a collector of animals uh, <laughs> and always has been. So. Uh, you know, growing up, we had at least, you know, five or six stray dogs in our house at any given time and uh, twice as many cats. And um, it's not easy to get up and leave, you know, and um, uh, at least not with all of your your pets. And so um, I respect I respected that sort of loyalty that she had and that a lot of people have in those in those scenarios and uh, I wanted to write about it more compassionately than I think, uh, you know, the more journalistic approaches often do, which is that they made a mistake or they were stubborn or, you know, and, and so, um, yeah. Yeah. I'm curious why you decided to focus a lot of your research on art, mm. right? You bring art so prominently into this book. Where did that thread or that obsession come from? I think I think it again is trying to disrupt the typical narrative of a place like Houston or or the Gulf Coast as not being capable of producing beauty or you know challenging art um, and in fact you know quite a few artists and and quite a few aesthetic movements have come out of Houston you know in the book I write about Houston as sort of a hub for for modern art with the the De Menil family and the Menil Museum and the Rothko Chapel. And um, I think Houston and, and the Gulf Coast are particularly, you can go all the way to New Orleans, but are, are uh, especially good incubators for innovation like that because, uh, because of their sort of limitless uh, 
capability. You know, they're not bound by an island or a grid the way uh, the way Manhattan is. And you know, there've been plenty books written about them, but there haven't been enough written about the Gulf Coast, and there <laughs> haven't been enough uh, written about you know artistic movements that come out of other places. Um, yeah, I, I, I tried to I tried to weight this book heavily uh, with examples of how it produced innovation and um, you know experimentation and uh, interesting art. Yeah, mm-hmm. I want to talk about Forrest Best because he was a, a gay man, but you also and I guess I'm I'm pivoting hard here, but you also mention the NFL player. Uh, Jeff Alm mm-hmm. of the Houston Oilers and and his friend Sean Lynch, uh, they were they were a- accused, I guess, in their deaths of or there was accusations that they might have been lovers. I'm wondering, like there there was, I don't know whether this is just a thread I'm drawing, but I'm wondering what binds these stories to your your mission, your thesis. Mm-hmm. I think I'm always interested in um, narratives of of masculinity and our problematic, you know, narratives of masculinity and especially how we portray men in tragedy. And in the, in the case of, uh, of Jeff Alm, I, I, I was writing about the history of freeways in Houston and the sort of built environment. And, um, I've always been fascinated with the sort of orbits of, you know, overpasses in Houston. And, um, from when I was a kid, you know, thrilled by, being, you know, 200 feet in the air, you know, going through a city is, uh, it's really incredible and scary when you think about it. Uh, mm-hmm. And there was one instance in which um, Jeff Alm, this football player, uh, was with his friend late at night and they they crashed on a freeway and, and Alm's friend, Sean Lynch, uh, died and Alm uh, then pulled a gun from his car and killed himself and... Um, a really tragic incident on the freeway, and um, and I sort of weave it into, you know, the sort of uh, fabric of narratives that come from Houston freeways, and um, look particularly at uh, the sort of hurtful and homophobic rumors that emerged after that incident, um, and, and and try to write about those people and and the place in a in a way that's I guess more more compassionate than the police report did, and you know it's it's a chapter removed from the story of Forrest Best, but I think there is a sort of invisible conversation between the two. Um, I write about growing up in in Houston as a young man and and being particularly fragile and impressionable to you know tropes of Southern masculinity, and and I think you know that sort of bleeds into my you know, crisis of, of identity as a late teen, uh, joining the military as a, as an escape plan and a sort of frustrated lashing out in terms of, you know, not, not feeling, you know, at home and, and not feeling a a purpose. And yeah, I think, I think that's a sort of, uh, undercurrent throughout the book. That's not as explicit, but it, it, it's a memoir in many ways of, you know, my life growing up in this place, but also I think, I think I'm always, I'm always writing toward or, or criticizing, you know, our idea of, of masculinity. And that it's a, it's a question I certainly haven't solved as a writer, but uh, definitely a, a, a theme for sure. 
Micah, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Lauren. It's my pleasure. Pleasure to be here. That was memoirist and essayist Micah Fields, author of We Hold Our Breath, A Journey to Texas Between Storms, from W.W. Norton & Company. Look for more information about Micah at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You've been listening to The Right Question. The show is produced by Chris Moyles and me. I'm your host, Lauren Korn. Chris also engineered this episode, and MTPR intern Nani Hamilton helped edit this episode. The artwork for The Right Question was designed by Molly Russell, and our music was written and recorded by John Floridis. Funding for The Right Question is provided by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. Many thanks to Humanities Montana for supporting this program since 2008, and thank you for listening. The Right Question is a production of Montana Public Radio.